Thank you. Number Mr. Abrams, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this capital case raises issues about the adherence by the State of Mississippi to this Court's rulings in Edwards v. Arizona and Michigan v. Jackson. The relevant facts are not in dispute. Uh, arrested in California on the basis of capital murder warrants issued in Mississippi, Mr. Menick was questioned by the FBI. His interrogation was on a Friday. Mr. Minnick spoke with the agents about his escape from a Mississippi prison and refused to respond to certain questions about two Mississippi homicides for which he'd been arrested. Clearly, expressly, and unambiguously, Minnick on three separate occasions told the agents that he wished to have an attorney. Minnick's language, as recorded by the agents, and in response to their inquiry and their warning to him that he didn't have to speak unless his lawyer was present, was that they should, quote, come back Monday when I have a lawyer, unquote. At which time, he said, he would, quote, this is from the FBI report, make a more complete statement then with his lawyer present. The FBI agents immediately discontinued uh, questioning. Mr. Minnick spoke to assigned counsel over the weekend. Early Monday morning, a sheriff from Mississippi appeared at the jail. The next jailers told him that he had to go downstairs and talk to him and that he could not refuse. The Mississippi Supreme Court made a precise factual finding, not in dispute on this appeal, that, quote, the jailers told Minnick that he would have to go down and talk with Denham, who's the sheriff. Deputy Denham, who testified that he had with him a copy of the FBI interview, a report, the report I referred to earlier, read Minnick a statement of his Miranda rights. According to Deputy Denham, Minnick, after first uh, uh, referring to and answering questions about his escape from the Mississippi jail, then made certain inculpatory statements about his role in the homicide. Those statements were introduced at trial and uh, were referred to throughout the trial by the prosecutor in a case which wound up with a finding of capital murder and the death sentence being imposed. Not at issue, then, in this case, are the facts that Mr. Minnick not only asked for counsel, but asked for counsel to be present at any resumption of his interrogation. Not at issue is the fact that notwithstanding that explicit request on his part, he was required to meet with the Mississippi sheriff without his counsel present after his jailers told him that he had to talk with Denham and after they brought him down to see Denham. There is no issue in this case, as has sometimes arisen before this Court, involving anything which could conceivably be viewed as reinitiation by Minnick of discussions with the Mississippi Sheriff. He was brought down against his will to meet with him after he had counsel, after he'd asked for counsel to be present at any resumption of any, invest uh, of any uh, interrogation being resumed and questioned by the Sheriff. It's also undisputed that he had seen counsel in the interim. Y yes, sir. Uh, he had, in, in the interim, I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. Over the weekend, he, he saw counsel and spoke with counsel. Uh, can we say that it's also undisputed that this confession is voluntary? It is not undisputed that it is voluntary. For purposes of this case, I should have said, for purposes of the issue presented to us, we can assume the confession is fully voluntary. I find that a difficult question, Justice Kennedy, because even the Mississippi, the Mississippi Supreme Court 
did not make any, any specific finding uh, 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 on that, except that that Minnick had waived, in their view, uh, his uh, Sixth Amendment rights and perhaps implicitly his Fifth Amendment rights. Well, but the rule you're asking is to adopt a certain uh, rule that takes no account of the fact that the confession is fully voluntary. Yes, sir. The, 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 the rule I'm advocating to you uh, and the rule that we believe that the Edwards case and Jackson have already established is that whatever happens, however voluntary it may be, after the resumption by the authorities uh, is uh, inadmissible. Yes, sir. The core question uh, in the case, then, is whether these allegedly inculpatory statements made by Minnick on the occasion of the reinterrogation he was required to attend can serve the base, as a basis for his conviction and execution. In, in our view, if the court please, this case is governed by and indeed controlled by this court's ruling in Edwards versus Arizona in its Fifth Amendment aspects, uh, and in its Sixth Amendment aspects, its ruling of a similar nature in Michigan versus Jackson. As we understand those cases, they conclude that the police, in a situation in which an individual states that, that he wishes to consult with counsel, must cease the interrogation at that time, uh, and that it may not be resumed unless the defendant or the accused himself has reinitiated uh, uh, further communications with the authorities. In a sense, the issue raised, as we view it, is even narrower than that. Because in this case, Mr. Minnick not only explicitly sought counsel, but explicitly requested counsel's presence at any resumption of the interrogation. And the basic issue that divides us here is then uh, plain enough. It is the position of both Mississippi and the United States that since Minnick had access to counsel over the weekend, since he did speak to counsel over the weekend, that that suffices to meet the constitutional requirements of the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. We believe that as a reading of this Court's precedence, that it is a misreading, that, that Miranda itself determined that if an individual states he wants an attorney, interrogation must cease until an attorney is present. Well, that's pretty much dicta, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's dicta, but it is then read in, as we read the Edwards case, Your Honor, uh, as, a, as a good part of the rationale for Edwards itself. That is to say, in Edwards, when the court considers Miranda, the, the court then states that the, that the Fifth Amendment right identified in Miranda is the right to have counsel present at any custodial interrogation. We think that that conclusion uh, in Edwards itself, which is the case that we really rely upon here, is a... Uh, a significant part, at the least, Your Honor, of the Court's reaching its final conclusion uh, in Edwards. Uh, at the core of Edwards, as we understand this Court to have repeated it again and again through the years, is the unique role that a lawyer can play in protecting Fifth Amendment rights of a client undergoing interrogation. That phrase is one which has recurred with frequency, as this Court has explained, uh, the purport of Edwards itself, in, in Robertson well, versus. So yes. certainly, there's language in, in Edwards, um, Mr. Abrams, and uh, I just look at the what, what was quoted here by the Mississippi Supreme Court, it's a, where they say we further hold that the accused, having expressed his desire to deal with the police only through counsel, is not subject to further interrogation by the authority until counsel has been made available to it. Now here, counsel was made available to it, and and the question, uh, Mr. Chief Justice before the court, as a matter of interpretation of Edwards at least, is the meaning of that phrase, uh, and the meaning of that phrase in context. Well, uh, counsel made available to him? You, are you saying that seeing the lawyer in the interim was not making counsel available to him? I read counsel available to him in the context of this language, Your Honor, as counsel available to him at the interrogation. And, and I, I, with all respect, I urge upon you that in the context of the two paragraphs, uh, from, from which the Mississippi Supreme Court quoted that phrase, that that is, that is the only fair reading. If, if I may, that the court said in Edwards, uh, we now hold that when the accused has invoked his right to have counsel present during custodial interrogation, a valid waiver of that right cannot be established by showing only that he responded to further police-initiated custodial interrogation, even if he's been advised of his rights. We further hold, and this is the sentence in question, that an accused such as Edwards 
having expressed his desire to deal with the police only through counsel, is not subject to further interrogation by the authorities until counsel has been made available to him unless the accused himself initiates further communication. And then the court says, as, as if, I would urge upon you, as if to clear up any potential ambiguity in the language, Miranda itself indicated that the assertion of the right to counsel was a significant event and that once exercised by the accused, the interrogation must cease until an attorney is present. Our later cases have not abandoned that view. And in case after case, I, I, I appreciate that language is used sometimes, uh, which, which, which the court, when it considers an issue narrowly, uh, may decide it, it had not phrased as felicitously as, as it might have. But in case after case, decided after Edwards, in which this court has summarized the, the core of Edwards, it has done so in a fashion consistent, at least, with the reading that we offer uh, to you today. Uh, when, when, for example, in Patterson versus Illinois, the, the court was summarizing Edwards. It said that the, that the essence of both Edwards and Jackson was to preserve the integrity of an accused choice to communicate with the police only through counsel. It is not communicating with the police only through counsel if all you have is a consultation with counsel over the weekend and at the interrogation itself a counsel uh, is... Yeah, the, the, the defendant can't change his... Mother. If he said on Friday, I want to have the interrogation only with a lawyer, he sees the lawyer, kind of, they come back, and he, can, he can't change his mind? Absolutely. He can change his mind. And indeed, Your Honor, I read it as the holding of Edwards, that he can change his mind, but that he has to reinitiate communications if he does. Even though he's seen a lawyer in the interview? Even though he has seen a lawyer in the meantime. So that, that, that is what we argue to you. And even though the lawyer has told him not to talk? Even though the lawyer has told him not to talk. It isn't the same as the lawyer being at the interrogation. I mean, a lawyer at the interrogation can play all the different roles that this court has indicated uh, in all its different opinions at an interrogation itself. Uh, and, and it simply doesn't fulfill the same function of the lawyer at the interrogation uh, if, if the lawyer simply talks to the person uh, in advance. Uh, uh, it seems to me that, for example, if, if one were to ask the question, what could a lawyer do for him at the interrogation? Why is it really, I mean, in the real world, why is it different if a lawyer had been at this interrogation or had been with him at that time? But I, I would urge on you that just that's, a, I think, a fair question. Uh, one answer is that a lawyer would have told them they can't make you go down and talk to them. They can't make you go down when you don't want to go down that they can't make you leave your cell and get down. They can't make you, quote, talk to them, as, as, as the jailer told him that he had to do. Uh, the lawyer would tell him, Sheriff Denham is not your friend. Sheriff Denham, who's going to talk to you about your mama back home, wants to execute you. Uh, and, and the lawyer who is standing with him can play that sort of role. And as a lawyer, he could explain to Minnick when questions were asked uh, which uh, Minnick, according to Sheriff Denham, uh, answered. He could explain to Minnick that it might not be a defense for Mr. Minnick, even if the alleged confession was exactly what Minnick said, it might not be a defense for him uh, if, in fact, uh, the other individual accused and convicted of murder had killed one person and put a gun to Minnick's head and say, you have to kill the other person uh, or I'm going to kill you. A lawyer present there uh, would, would have played a role, and a lawyer in advance simply cannot uh, play that role. In our views, Your Honor, then, it not only makes a difference in this case, uh, it, it, it makes a, a major difference in terms of what Edwards and Jackson and Roberson and a flock of precedents of this court will be understood to have meant. It would also lead, if, if this decision were to be affirmed, to a significant uh, uh, moving away from, at the least, what this Court has more than once referred to uh, as the bright line rule of Edwards. Uh, Edwards is, at the very least, uh, clear, uh, comprehensible, understood by police. There have not been many cases uh, about it. Uh, uh, if that is abandoned in this type situation, there simply is no doubt that we will wind up with minic hearings burdening the courts for years to come. I mean, every prosecutor will. Why would he not want to reinterrogate 
an individual after he saw his lawyer without the lawyer's presence. What, what good prosecutor wouldn't want to do that, wouldn't try to do that? Mr. Abrams, I think many people thought Miranda itself was a bright line. And you know, and we know perhaps better than you do, we don't have just hundreds of Miranda petitions. We have thousands over a period of years. Every, every sentence and every clause has turned on its own little jurisprudence. So I, I, I'm not, not at all sure that deciding this case one, or, one way or another is going to diminish the amount of Miranda jurisprudence. You, you've had a lot of Miranda jurisprudence, as I understand it, and as I hear you, Your Honor. You really haven't had a lot of Edwards jurisprudence. You've had Edwards jurisprudence on retroactivity and the like. Well, and we've had... Edwards has worked. We've had, juris, we've had discussions as to whether what was re-interrogation. We've had several cases involving I just know of one, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure I may have missed them. Uh, what you would have, if, if you rule against us here, are hearings which, you've, which we do not now have in the legal system, which relate to how often the prosecutors went back to the cell to seek to reinterrogate him after he saw his lawyer, uh, how, how hard the prosecutor came on. Uh, how, all he has to do, all he has to do is tell him again, my lawyer told me not to say anything. I'm not saying anything. That's all he, he had to he, do. He holds the keys to his interrogation right there. That's all he had to do in Edwards. Right. That, that's all he had to do in, in, a, in Robertson. That's all he had to do in a flock of cases uh, in this court, and which is, as, as I read the, the court's jurisprudence, well, what you've said is we will not put uh, a, a, an accused who is in a custodial situation uh, into that position We've, we're, never we're having, said, we've never said that after he's seen a lawyer, we won't put him in that position. Absolutely not. No, that's what you're asking us and, to say here. That's right. But if, if you compare this case to cases like uh, Smith versus Illinois or uh, Roberson versus Arizona, I'd, I'd submit to you that this is an, an easier case in, in terms of adherence to the, the core principle, of, as we read it at least, of Edwards uh, uh, and Jackson uh, than, than either of those harder cases were. Uh, we, we don't deal here with a separate crime. We don't deal here with a situation where in Smith, all, all the prosecutor did, all the policeman did, was to finish reading Miranda. Uh, and that was held to go too far consistently with Edwards. One of the advantages of Edwards, not the only one, but one of the advantages that this court has more than one remarked upon, more than once remarked upon, is the fact that that, that lays down clear rules. And, and, and you, you have not had... Uh, uh, problems uh, of a serious nature in interpretation of those rules, and perhaps at least as important, the lower courts have not been burdened. Well, it is clear it's at some expense, though. I mean, it's, it's saying uh, Just, we, we, we won't have all these questions about questioning the defendant uh, because uh, basically you can't question the defendant, period. Just clear, every bright line rule imposes a cost, and, and I don't deny that for a moment. Uh, the Edwards rule by its nature, uh, Jackson, Miranda, but all these cases, by their nature, every time you establish a prophylactic rule, you are assuming or understanding when you do it that there might be on the periphery some confessions here that might otherwise have been admissible, but which you are ruling to be uh, inadmissible. And that, I agree with you, that comes with, with the territory. I don't think I'm asking you to expand the territory at all. The, the United States and Mississippi take the position that we are seeking some sort of extension of the Edwards case or expansion of, of, of the Edwards case. With all respect, that is, that is the normal rhetoric of, of cases of this sort. One side says, I'm just adhering to it. The other side says, you're seeking to expand it. I'll, I'll go one more. I think they're trying to contract it. Uh, I, I think that the, what, is, what is really involved here is that they are attacking the, the core of these cases themselves. So. Sixth Amendment gets you any farther? I don't think we really need the uh, Sixth Amendment, uh, Your Honor. We, we do uh, argue it because uh, if, if for any reason... Well, what if you lose on the Fifth? It, if we lose on the Fifth, you know, it's not that's why we need it. Uh, um, and and, and, and that's, why we, we, that's why we argued it. I understand them to make two Sixth Amendment arguments, and neither of them is the core argument that we have been discussing so far today. They do not maintain, and I don't think they could seriously maintain, that if the Sixth Amendment governs this case, uh, uh, that uh, because counsel had been spoken to over the weekend, his Sixth Amendment rights uh, had been adhered to. No Sixth Amendment case offers any support of that. They make two arguments against our Sixth Amendment argument. First, they claim we didn't raise it. 
uh, in our petition for certiorari. Uh, I don't have anything more to say about that than what, what, what we said in our responsive papers. Uh, we, we did not phrase it in terms of either the Fifth or Sixth Amendment. We referred in the petition for certiorari to Michigan versus Jackson, which is a Sixth Amendment case. Their response, the state of Mississippi's response to the petition for certiorari, interpreted the question in precisely this fashion. In, in their brief in opposition, they said that what was at issue here is, quote, petitioner's Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights were not violated by the admission of his confession into evidence. Is, is, is the question which is set forth as the question presented on the first page of your blue, blue brief, is that the same question as contained no, in your... No, Your Honor. It is, a, it is a rewritten, I thought, a clearer form of the question. Do you think counsel is, is free to do that? I understand from Rule 24 that so long as we are not expanding the, the scope of what is before the Court f fairly presented to you, uh, that, that, that if we can state it in a fashion which fairly presents what was before you at the time of the petition for cert, that we are permitted to do that, uh, and, and uh, we think we have done just that, Your Honor. The, the, uh, uh, the precise question as it was phrased uh, in the petition for cert referred to neither amendment. I thought it was helpful to, to try to put that in when uh, I didn't work on the petition itself. The petition says whether once an accused has expressed his desire to deal with law enforcement officers only through counsel, the police may reinitiate interrogation in the absence of counsel as soon as the accused has completed one's consultation with a lawyer. I think that fairly encompasses Fifth and Sixth Amendment. Well, assume it did. Uh, what's your argument on the Sixth Amendment? Well, the argument on the Sixth Amendment uh, is that... Uh, if we are right, Your Honor, that, that his Sixth Amendment rights had attached, well, that's the, which is, which is the point I'd there. like to address, yes. I, I, I was simply starting with the, with the proposition that if we're over that hurdle, we don't think we have any other hurdle because they do not argue and can't that, that consultation with a lawyer over the weekend satisfies the Sixth Amendment. Our position on the attachment point, Your Honor, is, is this. It's perfectly true and it's undeniable that that is a matter of... of it is a matter of federal constitutional law uh, to, uh, in any determination of when the Sixth Amendment applies. We understand, though, and it's, it's our position to you, that given that this is a state prosecution, given the fact that the Mississippi Supreme Court has held in this case and, be, and before, and that indeed the state of Mississippi so argued before uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court, uh, that the right had attached uh, under Mississippi law, and therefore, in the language of Kirby versus Illinois, from this court, uh, that Mississippi was committed to prosecute on the issuance of the arrest warrant, not not the later time when, undeniably, so that's the beginning of formal proceedings in Mississippi, and 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 that is what the Mississippi Supreme Court held in this case, and that it is held in other cases cited in our brief as well. Uh, the argument against us is that there ought to be one body of law, uh, the, the federal law, which has basically been established in certain uh, precedents of this case. We think that way when you have a state prosecution, uh, that, that it does lie with the state to make a decision as to when it has committed to prosecute. And there are reasons unique to Mississippi set forth in its jurisprudence as to why under Mississippi law uh, that right attaches uh, earlier the rural nature of the state, the, the fact that as a matter of common practice uh, indictments are issued uh, long after uh, uh, all the work... But they do something more to uh, actually bring it to start the proceeding further. They file complaints, don't they? Yes, yes. But, or they, but they indict or they start have with preliminary hearings? Or? Yes, uh, but what, what they have concluded uh, here and elsewhere, what, the, what they have concluded is that the issuance of the arrest warrant under Mississippi law, is the moment uh, at which uh, this right attaches. Wouldn't it be easier to have a bright-line rule, Mr. Abrams, just so we don't have to <laughs> well, go state by state? I mean, just one nice bright-line federal there, rule. <laughs> there, there are some times when federalism comes in more than handy, uh, and I, I think that, 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 uh, that, that this is one. This Court has not had this issue before it really at all. 
In Kirby versus Illinois, the, the, the court set forth five different times when it could be said that the right uh, attaches uh, and, and has never addressed the question in a state context. Mr. It's Abrams, a, may I just interrupt for a second? Is it, am, I, am I not correct that the, mis, the majority, and the Mississippi Supreme Court was divided, the majority assumed the Sixth Amendment right had attached and held it yes. been waived? Yes, Your Honor. And there, whereas the dissenters thought that relied on the Sixth Amendment and found it had not been waived? Yes, Your Honor. So they all agreed the right had attached? All of them agreed that the Sixth Amendment right had attached, and the state of Mississippi so urged that position on them. Well, we, we seem to put a lot on the state law in the Moore case. Yes. Yes, and and uh, we referred to Illinois. Was it Illinois law? Yes, yes, and and we've we've to, we've yeah. cited that to you, and we think that it's a, a, a fair cite for that proposition. Uh, and uh, indeed, we think uh, Kirby itself suggests uh, that reliance on state law would be proper here. So our, our view in the in the end is a just take a, a final second. We think you could write an opinion reversing this opinion, which is no more than a series of quotations from the opinions you've written in this area. Uh, we think that the summaries which this court has offered through the years of what Edwards means and why Edwards exists uh, apply on all fours uh, in this case. Uh, there's an enormous difference between a lawyer being present and a lawyer consulting, and uh, we urge that upon you, and we urge you to reverse this conviction. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time. Very well, Mr. Abrams. Uh, Mr. White, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, today the Court is being asked to determine the effect of counsel actually being furnished to a defendant on his subsequent waiver of his right to counsel in a renewed contact by the police. Of course, the State contends that Edwards v. Arizona allows a renewed contact by police after counsel has been made available. In fact, the concluding substantive paragraph in Edwards points out that the statement in question there was made without having had access to counsel and therefore did not amount to a valid waiver and hence it was inadmissible. The same language is again used or similar language is used again in Arizona versus Roberson uh, in the phrase there is without counsel having been provided. And in Rhode Island versus Ennis, the court says until he had consulted with a lawyer. Uh, the cases uh, use the terms, those terms, or that term, language from Edwards, about uh, having had access or having counsel been uh, available uh, over and over. The factual situation in this case at bar is distinguishable, of course, from the usual Edwards scenario, um, because here, after Minnick told the FBI agents that he didn't want to talk further until speaking with his lawyer, they ceased questioning and left him, and he told them to come back Monday and he would give them a more detailed statement when his lawyer was present. Uh, some two days later, after he had consulted with his attorney by his own admission two or three times that weekend, not just a brief consultation, but he had, had met with counsel two or three times over the weekend, uh, the Mississippi Deputy Sheriff arrived in San Diego and requested to be allowed to uh, speak with Minnick. Minnick was brought to the interview room, and then... Uh, May I ask you a question right there? Do you rely on the fact that he was an out-of-state... Uh, Person, in other words, under your Mississippi canons of ethics, as I understand, once a lawyer has been—this is cited in the dissenting opinion below—once a lawyer is uh, representing a, a a person, there is an ethical obligation not to communicate without with that client without notice to opposing counsel. Uh, does that does that have any relevance to this case? I don't think it does, Your Honor. And in this, in that thing, because uh, I don't think that we can say that the uh, in that particular in this particular situation that. Mr. Denham was the agent of any lawyer uh, at that point. Would it have made a difference if it had been the prosecutor himself who wanted to talk to him? It, it could have. I mean, under an ethical-type consideration, it may have, but that is not the case here. And, and of course, the rest He's of the not, in effect, an agent of the prosecutor. No, he was not. Uh, we would not submit that he was an agent of the prosecution. There are law enforcement officers, or people, or uh, sworn officers that, that are actually working the district attorney's offices and and are their agents, I think. But just the police, uh, just a normal deputy sheriff or a policeman, I don't think would be classed as an agent of the prosecutor. Um, Apparently, why, why do you suppose the dissenting opinion made so much of the canons of ethics then? Um, With it, and the majority <laughs> didn't disagree at all. But I guess being, you do. Without being um, uh, disrespectful for, for the, to the court to the below, I'm, uh, we don't, we, that, that particular justice and I don't see eye to eye on much at all. 
uh, in our opinions in uh, that, and, and uh, uh, this is, uh, I think, an extensive ground to. Well, but you do agree, don't you? Those that, you do agree, don't you? That's generally unethical for a lawyer to oh, yes, consult lawyer. with an adversary's sure. client without notice the other I, lawyer, I would agree which is the principal that. point he was making. I, th- I think so. Yeah. Um, the um, Mississippi deputy arrived in San Diego, and, and of course. Uh, advised Minnick when he was brought into the, into the questioning room uh, of his rights according to Miranda. Minnick gave him an oral waiver and, of course, subsequently gave this uh, a statement implicating himself in the uh, two Mississippi murders for which he stands convicted now. Um, clearly, there's no question that Minnick had been furnished counsel, uh, that by his own admission he had talked to counsel on two or three occasions. And, uh, and of course, he had... Uh, consulted with him prior to re- reinitiation of interrogation when the Mississippi authorities arrived. Mr. White, <coughs> would you agree that if the defendant's Sixth Amendment right had attached, that there was no waiver of that right? Uh, no, I, I would not agree. No. I mean, I think, that, I think that he had time to consult with his counsel, and as this Court has said many times, uh, that he has a right to change his mind and to uh, talk to to uh, an attorney. I mean, I mean, talk to the police, uh, even without notice to his counsel. So that in Brewer versus Williams, and and uh, as recently as in uh, Michigan v. Harvey, in a in a context. Even, even though the police have approached him, and uh, uh, he is he is at first reluctant to talk, and finally they get him to talk. There was not, well, maybe if there's a reluctance to talk, but there was no reluctance to talk in this case. Uh, when, when he, he saw Je- Deputy Jen- uh, Denham, in fact, he told him, I've been waiting to see you, been expecting you. Uh, I thought somebody told him he had to go down and talk. Well, I think the, given the Miranda warnings and, of course, the advice of counsel, he knew he didn't have to go down there, and he, uh, didn't, course, he didn't he tell him he had to go and he had to talk to the man? I think that's what he says in the record, yes, sir. But the when you say counsel is made available, suppose there's a, a telephone call between the uh, prisoner and the counsel, and the counsel says, uh, I'll, "I'll be there tomorrow. I'm busy. Don't talk to anybody." Is is that counsel being available? I think there, you know, you're, the bright line that we are suggesting, of course, is that once counsel there's been a consultation. Now, the, well, what's a consultation? Well, that's that would be something to be determined. It's not clear to me that that's. That's, that's a very bright line. It would be a, a consultation in which uh, the attorney had a, an opportunity to advise that client of just, I think, what you said. I think that so the then before call, the police know whether they can initiate a conversation, they have to say, now, did you talk to the counsel and what did you talk about? No, I don't think they have a right to do that go that far. Well, how, would the, how are they going to know? How is the rule going to be applied? I think that you have a right to reapproach and ask if he has, in fact, consulted with, with counsel and if he says no, then the police must leave. If he says yes, then they can Mirandize him again, and, and if he waives the right to counsel. What if he says yes, and I don't want to talk to you without counsel? He must leave, or wait till counsel is present. But until counsel comes in next time, or can they go back in a half hour? No, I, th- I think he, I think he, until he has consulted with counsel again, I don't think that he would. They would have that. So this is kind of a series of leapfrog, one, uh, one shot. Attempts by the police, and every time he says, "I want, I want my counsel," then they wait till he talks with them on the telephone again, and they can go back. There again, I think you get into the the uh, an analysis much uh, very similar to that found in Michigan v. Mosley. Uh, was the waiver voluntary uh, at, at that point? No. The, the the question is whether or not the police can re- can initiate the conversation. And you indicated that if he once had seen counsel insisted on the, at the time the police first contacted again uh, that he wanted counsel again, that the police had to desist, and I thought your rule was until he consulted counsel a second time. Well, I, I, no, I think that you have a, a situation that the number of times, I think, would all go to then a, you know, how many times did they go back? I think that would all apply to a, a, uh, the, whether the waiver was voluntary. Well, then you're saying that they can go back as many times as necessary in order to get him to change his mind? Well, then, of course, that, that of course, impacts on the volunteering. Well, I assume it's voluntary. They just go by every half hour. 
Well, I don't see anything uh, if he's consulted with counsel every half hour. Yes. Well, I, I assume that that uh, the conscientious counsel would uh, would probably uh, try to delay conferring with his client as long as possible. Isn't that right? That may be the <laughs> the outcome of that. Yeah. For sure. He'd tell him, you know, ask for a lawyer, but don't talk to one. That's that's the uh, the best advice that a criminal that's, uh, that's accused could get. That's a great right to counsel, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, did you did you mean to say that if the Sixth Amendment had attached in this case, and by the way, do you did you concede that it had attached? If if the opinion of the Mississippi Supreme Court is read, which and we contend that the shorthand used there is nothing deals nothing with the federal Sixth Amendment right. So the Sixth Amendment right to counsel under Mississippi law. Yeah, yeah. Had but attached. you don't you you don't concede in this no, court that the, that the federal right had attached. But if it, it but if it has. Uh, if it has attached or did attach, uh, do you uh, say that uh, that uh, the state may then uh, initiate an interrogation? I, th- I think the line is much blurrier there in that in that situation. Uh, how do you read Jackson? Uh, uh, Jackson's pretty specific in that in that area. Well, you mean it isn't blurry, is it? Not not uh, not really. But I think that with the furnishing of counsel there, I, I think that once counsel has been appointed, I think the state does have a even um, under, even under the Sixth Amendment. I thought you answered me to the contrary. Did I misunderstand you when I asked you about the Sixth Amendment? No, I think that the person can waive at any time. Uh-huh. And that's, I thought but, that was your question. But may the state initiate? Well, can the police initiate it like they did here? That was the purpose of the question. I thought you well, I th- said, I yes, think, that was fine, yes. under the Sixth Amendment. You don't yes. think Jackson bars that? I think that under the same test that is used in Edwards, uh, which, which it says it's adopting the Edwards test, I think the same test is there. You mean that, that the, you mean the accused has to initiate it? Unless counsel has been provided there. Uh-huh. All right. But as so the Sixth we, Amendment uh, adds nothing to the case in your view? No, it doesn't. In fact, we, our, it is our firm contention that the Sixth Amendment right to counsel yes. has not even attached in this case because there's nothing unusual about Mississippi law, contrary to what uh, Mr. Abrams has said. That well, would are, are, are you saying that the, the proper way to interpret the opinion of the Supreme Court of Mississippi about the right to counsel is that the Mississippi law respecting the right to counsel or the Mississippi law respecting the initiation of prosecutions? I mean, does Mississippi have a more liberal provision as to when you have the right to counsel than the federal constitution? Under these latest decisions of uh, the, the state constitution, they, this, the opinions dealing with this specifically say we reject the federal approach and say that we're not relying, we might be citing federal cases, but we reject the federal law and say that this is purely exclusively done under state law. Uh, this, this right to counsel. They use this shorthand of the Sixth Amendment, I'm afraid, in just as a shorthand for instead of saying Section 26. Oh, but Mr. Or, White, in the opinion, they say the standard for turn whether or not a defendant has waived a Sixth Amendment right to counsel was set out in Brewer against Williams that's, for 30 years. That's, that's hardly a Mississippi case. That, well, I agree. In this and Minnick argues further that his Sixth Amendment right to counsel under Mississippi law had attached. He's mean, that's the Mississippi law only went to when the right attached. And then they say... And they're talking about this. Is, it the, is the right to counsel in the Mississippi Constitution in the Sixth Amendment, or is it in some other amendment? It's not in the Sixth Amendment there. So when they use Sixth Amendment, that's a reference to the federal Constitution. Well, I... That's rather if, clear. If the case that they rely on, which is Livingston there, states clearly that they're not relying on federal law to find that right. Uh, the, as I say, the Sixth Amendment, using the Sixth Amendment is uh, uh, not, not a clear... Uh, indication that the federal Sixth Amendment right is attached. Uh, the arrest warrant does not in any way put the put a state to the burden of prosecuting anybody. Well, I think I think what they're saying is they're not relying on federal law for their determination of when it attaches, but they're making it clear that they think that when it does attach, federal law comes along with it. That is the Sixth Amendment. Now, you may argue against that, yes. but that's it, and, and maybe that's not their call. It's, it's probably our call rather than theirs. I think under but, Coleman versus Alabama, it is your call. Yes. And, uh, and, of course, the reason in Coleman versus Alabama, they say we look to the state law is to see when those guarantees of the Sixth Amendment are impinged upon. Then, you know, as in Coleman, there they said you held that the preliminary hearing was a stage because if you fail to raise certain defenses at that point, 
you, you would lose them forever. They would be forever waived. So they said, you found that to be the critical point that the right to counsel attached, and therefore uh, the Sixth Amendment came into play there, whereas in Mississippi, the issuance of an arrest warrant, this was kind of bootstrapped from a, a statute of limitations uh, statutes, two statute of limitations statutes setting out what crimes and when the statute of limitations had begun to run. The statute could just as easily have said that the statute began to run from the time the crime was committed. And, and of course, the court there would have said, well, the Sixth Amendment attached at the time that the, the, the crime was committed. Uh, that's, that's what we're saying that for the point of federal law, that that's just not, not a reasonable interpretation. May I go back to the Edwards argument for just a moment? And as I understand it, you have conceded that if uh, the police went back a second time after he'd had a chance to talk to counsel over the weekend and been advised not to talk to the police and said, we want to talk to you, and he had said, no, I want my lawyer present, that they could not have talked to him. That's right. But, but why do you concede that? Because as I understand it, you're, you're the basic proposition you're advancing in this case is that having been advised that he doesn't have to talk to the police, which is presumably the advice he got over the weekend, that's all the protection he needs. And he already had that protection. It seems to me there's some tension between your, that concession and your basic position. And saying that if, if he says, I don't want to talk again, that they can't force him to talk? Yeah, why, why can't they go ahead and still read him the Miranda warnings and start asking him questions? Because he's got the advice to counsel then. Why does he have to be told a second time he should talk? Because he also has a right to, to remain silent there. And I think that that is... That involves that, the right to silence, and the right to have counsel present. And if he wants counsel present, then, uh, and request counsel to be present at that time, uh, then, then I think you have to abide by that. But you, you're, you're intru- intru- interpreting as a, r- a right to have counsel present, not merely a right to be advised by counsel or, or have counsel available. I think he has a, a right not to talk to the authorities if he says so, says so. And if he says, no, I'm not going to talk to you, my counsel told me not to talk to you, I don't think that there's any any way that the state would have a right to go on and... and just keep, just not just use force, of course, yeah, but just course, try to persuade him to change his mind. I, that's think, all. I think that you would... There's a lot of difference between telling the man in a courtroom that he doesn't have to talk, telling the man in the street that he doesn't have to talk, and telling him in a jail that he does have to talk. Isn't there a difference... I'm sure Don't there is. A, I think there's a difference, yes. But and isn't there also a difference? When a man's out on bail, you can't do any of this. That's so true. solely because he had got money enough for bail, he's subjected to all of these things. Mr. Minnick was in for a non-bailable offense, so it didn't matter one way or the other. But uh, also, Mr. Minnick, of course, fancied himself as a jailhouse lawyer, and that's very clear in the testimony in the suppression hearing that he... That we look at the subjective intent and characteristics of Mr. Minnick here. Mr. White, can, can I pursue what Justice uh, uh, Stevens was asking you? As I understand your position, somehow if he says, I want a lawyer present at the interrogation, you say they have to stop right away. Although if he just said, I don't want to talk, you would still allow them to say, oh, come on, uh, why, why won't you? No. You, you wouldn't. He says, I don't want to talk. I think that I think there again that is saying uh, to cut it off. I, yes, I mean, uh, well, if, if someone just says uh, in the normal situation, if they do not request an attorney under Michigan v. Mosley, you can go back uh, after a, a brief period of time, um, two, three hours. But if he wants counsel, he means he doesn't want to talk to the police without counsel present. That's what Michigan. That's what somebody said in Michigan against Mosley. Yes. But I must say, I'm still puzzled by uh, your answer to Justice Stevens and, and, and to me. He gets arrested. He asks for counsel. He sees counsel. The police go back. He says, I want counsel. Your answer, as I understood it, was they can't talk to him anymore, at least until he sees the counsel a second time, and then they can go back one more time. Well, and, and to me, if you, I, I, I don't understand how you can... Uh, say that he can waive counsel um, when they asked him the first time, but they can't, he, he can't waive it when they asked him the second or third. Why, well, I, why not? I, I, it's the whole theory of your case that he's well advised so that he can waive. Maybe I wasn't clear. I didn't say that he couldn't waive the second or third time. I'm saying that, that when you get to that point of, 
of determining how many times they went back, that is a decision to be made from the totality of the circumstances, whether or not that waiver at that point was, in fact, voluntary. I mean, that, you get to the point of badgering there that's, uh, you know, and, and that's what we're saying. Uh, we're, not, we're not saying that you should be able to badger uh, this person by continuing going back, but I think that they, a fair opportunity to go back at that time should be allowed uh, by, to the state. <clears throat> and <clears throat> we submit that all that Mr. Denham would have had, I mean, Mr. Minnick would have had to do here when um, Deputy Denham, or when he was, uh, Deputy Denham came into the, the room, was say that, uh, that his counsel advised him not to talk to the police or that uh, he had counsel and warning present before he talked, and that would have ended the matter. Uh, that would have ended the matter, and then they, if they'd done it a third time, and that time he gave in, you say, well, they'd be badgering him, but I would suppose you'd then argue he not only had counsel once, he had him twice, so it's definitely voluntary. Well, the more often he talks to counsel, the more voluntary the, the statement is when made outside the presence of counsel. The, uh, what do you make of the fact that he refused to sign a waiver? Well, I think he was, he was following that much of his attorney's advice. Yeah, well, he refused to, but the police kept after him, and, they, and he finally talked without signing a waiver. Well, I mean, this, is, this was not one of the ways they just kept after him. This was, they had a, a short interview on Friday, and then the interview with, uh, with uh, Denham on Monday lasted 45 minutes to an hour. There was nobody from the police had uh, bothered him in between those times. Uh, well, what did they do, make an appointment for the second meeting? Well, no, they brought him down to the, yeah. to the, yeah. the room there when the Mississippi deputy arrived from, from Mississippi. Um, of course, Minnick knew full well he'd had the, had, that he did not have to talk with Denham. And, of course, the, uh, it's clear from the transcript of the suppression hearing that he intended to talk to, uh, to Denham about this case. Uh, he had no reason to believe that any request that he made of Denham to have counsel present would not be honored. His earlier request for counsel had been honored, and there was no reason for him not to believe that this would not be. Uh, this, um, of course, removes that uh, coercive atmosphere that is the concern of Edwards and Miranda um, the, that once a defendant has requested counsel uh, and it's furnished, then he has no, no reason to believe that it would not be furnished again or his, his, his request be furnished the second time that he uh, asks that or, if, or any re- um, re-invocation of that right. Um, so therefore, the, uh, as we, we said earlier, that the, the bright line test would be that of that once counsel or consultation has occurred, uh, then, then the police could reinitiate conversations with the um, defendant. And then, of course, whether or not that uh, waiver that, uh, of rights uh, waive the right to counsel was, in fact, voluntary, would be made under the totality of the circumstances test that we find in Michigan v. Mosley uh, for that uh, similar type situation where the uh, right to silence was invoked. Um, the, the fact that a, a um, request has been honored counteracts the coercive pressures of the custodial setting, and actual cons consultation with counsel removes, uh, I think, to an even greater extent than than uh, just leaving the person alone and, and then coming back uh, several hours after counsel had uh, been, uh, not been appointed. Uh, briefly on the, the Sixth Amendment issue, um, I think we've covered most of it, but the fact that, um, that uh, based on these two statutes, Mississippi Supreme Court has held that the right to counsel attaches at the time the arrest warrant issues. Um, the fact that the legislature set an arbitrary time for the statute to begin running and the, that the Mississippi Supreme Court has turned it to a point for the attachment of a state law right to counsel should have no effect to, on when the federal right attaches. Uh, and while it's true that we look to the state court law to make the determination as to when the Sixth Amendment right attaches, uh, the examination of state law is uh, to determine at what point rights guaranteed under the Sixth Amendment are implicated. Uh, in Mississippi, the court made clear the opinions leading to this we consider unusual holding um, that it rejected the federal approach and relied exclusively on state law 
and citing Page versus State and Canada versus State, which both uh, clearly say they reject uh, federal law there. Um, the, we would just submit that the issuance of an arrest warrant does not commit the State of Mississippi to prosecute a defendant, and therefore the federal Sixth Amendment right to counsel had not attached in this case. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. White. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you have four minutes remaining. I'd just like to make two points, Your Honor. First, uh, there was no ambiguity in what Mississippi said to its Supreme Court uh, about the attachment issue. I, I refer the Court to page JA68 uh, of the Joint Appendix. Uh, we quote there from the brief of Mississippi to their Supreme Court, in which they said it is, uh, after dealing with the Fifth Amendment right, having attached, citing Edwards, they then said it is, it is also evident that under Mississippi law, Minnick's Sixth Amendment right to counsel had attached at the time of the interview since warrants for his arrest had been issued, citing Livingston versus State. Uh, that was the position of Mississippi. If their position now were that they were wrong or they made a mistake or they were changing their view, uh, I, I would be more sympathetic. Uh, it is perfectly clear. It is not a subject, it should not be a subject of debate, but that's what they said to the Mississippi Supreme Court nor that the Mississippi Supreme Court is fully aware of what its own constitutional provision is. Uh, yes, they can change their mind, Your Honor. Uh, but what they can't do is change retrospectively the mind of the Mississippi Court. Uh, and and, and it, it does that court no service here to say that they use shorthand when they talk about their own constitution. Uh, Justice Robertson in dissent, for example, in this case, cited Article 3, Section 26, of the Mississippi Constitution, which is their right to counsel section. The Mississippi Supreme Court referred to the Sixth Amendment. The only other point that I... Excuse me, but Mr. Ray, that's, that's really an, uh, an accurate statement of, of the Mississippi Supreme Court's position, that under Mississippi law, Minnick's Sixth Amendment right to counsel had attached at the time of the interview. Yes. The issue before us today is whether under federal law, Minnick's Sixth Amendment right to counsel had attached. Your decision, I, I believe, Justice Scalia, is whether under uh, th th there's no doubt that it is for you to decide when Sixth Amendment rights attach, and that it is the federal constitution that makes that uh, decision. Uh, I think it is state law, however, which which is relevant in determining when Mississippi makes a quote commitment to prosecute, or when I'm just about quoting from Kirby, adversary proceedings have begun unquote. Uh, as a matter of state law. Uh, those are Mississippi decisions, I believe, not that they are procedural decisions, uh, almost substantive decisions, but, the, but they're Mississippi ones. It, it happens when the Mississippi Supreme Court says it happens? No. It happens if under, if under Mississippi law, if, if, if it is an accurate statement to make to you that, that adversary proceedings have commenced as a matter of Mississippi law or that Mississippi is, quote, committed, unquote, in the language of Kirby, to proceed, uh, then that is what I think that you should look to. And in looking to that, I think you should take very seriously, indeed, the ruling of the Mississippi Court. The final observation uh, uh, I would make, uh, I have decided uh, not to make except a quote from one line from Arizona versus Robertson, in which this court said that new Miranda warnings will not reassure a suspect who has been denied the counsel is clearly requested that his rights have remained untrammeled. The argument you've just heard is that what counsel, what, what Minnick asked for was given him, hence he could relax. He asked for counsel to be present at the reinterrogation. That's what he asked for. That was not given him. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Abrams. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Tuesday next.